what I'd like to do is ask you a question this morning. Probably you've had a pretty rough week this week. And praise the Lord that this is the first day of the, the week. We get to start off anew. And hopefully this will encourage you today. But I'd ask you a question today. What were the things that really irritated you this last week? Would it be a job, a boss? For the parents, would it be the children? And for the children, would it be the parents? What is the irritants in our life? And how do they work in us? I offer you an example this morning. A clam is closed for a purpose. But there is an irritant that gets into the clam. It's a grain of sand. And that grain of sand, as it enters that clam, there is something dynamic that happens. All of the fighting tissues of that clam on the inside gather around this this piece or this grain of sand and try to protect it from the rest of the clam. That goes on and on and on until finally there is a very hard substance. Once you break it open, there is a pearl that's revealed. What does God use in our lives as irritants that really are pearls that are being measured to us and for us, that we really have the, the privilege of being a believer. I think we're going to hear a lot about that today as we learn about his word and what he has to say to us today. Would you prepare our hearts as we prepare for worship? Brad Stevens. Brother Stevens is a ruling elder at Hickory Grove Presbyterian Church, but he currently attends Faith Presbyterian Church in Goodlitzville. He and his wife, Judy, have five children. I think they're all grown except ones at, at home. Brad uh, was ordained in the Baptist Church, and a dear friend of our family, uh, the elder Pastor Sartell, who's now uh, returned to glory. But years ago, Pastor Sartell, who's the father of John and Mike Sartell, uh, told me that Baptists make the best Presbyterians. <laughs> so, and Dina, of course, grew up in the Baptist church, and, uh, and this was Jerry Clower's church. And... And Brother Sartell's reasoning for this was, he said, think of, he said, nothing's impossible with God. Nothing's impossible with God. But think of a Scottish immigrant, which you're the, 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 the son of a son of a son of a Scottish immigrant. You grew up Presbyterian. It's easy for you to be a Puritan. It's easy for you to... Uh, proclaim the gospel, but not proclaim it with joy. He says, but you take a Baptist who have the joy, and then you make a Puritan out of them. <laughs> so, uh, 
We're excited about having Brother Brad here. Uh, I don't see Jason and Courtney McCash here this morning, but that's a similar situation. Uh, Jason was a chaplain in the U.S. Army, and now he's in the uh, Kentucky National Guard, and he's ordained in the Baptist Church, and he's seeking ordination in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, Jason's not very proud of the fact but I'm going to mention it anyway. They're having a boy. This is their second child, and uh, which is good because we've run out of Puritan names for girls. So, so I think the boy, I'm, I'm sure, will have Owen, Owen somewhere in his name. So, uh, But let's go ahead and come to the Lord. I certainly appreciate the kind comments that many of you made after the last time I spoke, and I hope that you'll be blessed by today's sermon as well. Today we're going to be focusing on a passage in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning asking for mercy. We look at the world around us and we see our failures. We see unrighteousness increasing. And we understand that in the absence of light, darkness prevails. We come asking you to humble us, draw us to repentance, lavish us with your grace so that we might change. Open your word to us and let the Holy Spirit teach us what it is you would have us to be and do in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll be pausing for a drink occasionally. As Christians, you are the salt of the earth. Now, did you know that salt is 40% sodium and 60% chloride? Now, sodium is an essential nutrient, a mineral that the body cannot manufacture on its own, but which is required for life and good health. Chloride, too, is essential to good health. One of its important tasks is to join with hydrogen in, in the stomach and create stomach acid. Without it, your body could not digest food. Salt is more important than making, being a way to make food taste better or for the use and preserva the preservation of foods. Salt is essential to life. 
And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that Christians are essential to life on this planet. Now that goes against everything that our culture says about Christians. That goes against the grain of what most Christians believe about themselves. The majority of Christians on this planet are simply looking for a way out of this mess. Uh, They've been taught over and over again that Jesus is their ticket out of this messed up planet. Get saved and then just endure until you go home. You may be saved by grace, but that grace really isn't powerful enough to change you. You're totally depraved, you know. And grace certainly isn't powerful enough to change society. Besides, we kind of like things the way they are. So don't rock the boat. You, as a believer in Christ, are called to be a boat rocker. You are essential to life on this planet. You were created to be here now for such a time as this. It's important that we understand that any activity that goes on in this world that is not a part of the new creation, is dead. When Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, he's talking about the result of becoming a new creation. God has given us life out of death. Our call then is that wherever we go, whatever we do, we are bringing life there. When Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 5, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and it may be well with you. Or in chapter 16 of the same book, Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live. He's not talking about salvation by works, but rather he's saying the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These good works that Paul's talking about are not some mystical random acts of kindness. But they are simply walking in obedience to the commands of God by the power of grace that is lavished upon us through faith. This is not a mystery. These are the same good works that Jesus is talking about in this passage. Let your light shine before men in such a way that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's go back to the passage because there's more to Jesus saying about statement about salt. We read, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Christianity is meant to be tasty. It is meant to be consumed and become a vital part of every area of life. If salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Have you ever known salt to be tasteless? The taste of salt can't be separated from salt. It's a chemical compound, and the taste of salt is an essential part of what salt is. What Jesus is saying here is this. If the stuff in the salt shaker doesn't taste like salt, guess what? It's not salt. Throw it out. It has nothing to offer your taste buds or your body. Make a walking path out of it. But Jesus says the salt becomes tasteless. What does that mean? Can we lose our salvation? Not at all. In our culture, we're used to salt that comes out of the uh, Morton container. 
It's uniform in size and color. We seldom think about salt being mined like gold or silver. Did you know that there is a salt mine under Lake Erie that is so huge they drive caterpillar tractors down under Lake Erie to mine the salt out? That blows me away. <laughs> salt is, for all intents and purposes, a rock. Before the Morton girl fully developed salt refining, pure salt was rarely available. So consumer salt usually contained other rocks and dirt, and that's just the nature of unrefined salt. What people more than likely had in their house was a bag of what we call rock salt. Now, I don't know if any of you make homemade ice cream, being the 4th of July. I'm sure some of you might get some practice in the next few days. Um, but in doing so, you pour rock salt on the ice around the ice cream maker for some reason. I don't know. I'm not a scientist here. Uh, I think it makes it colder. But how it makes it colder when it melts ice, I don't. I don't. Uh, anyway, whenever I pour rock salt out of the bag and around that precious ice cream, my first response is, this is disgusting. Uh, it looks like you're throwing gravel on top of that ice. Uh, and when you're finished, what's left over in the bottom is this dark, nasty-looking stuff. And you can see dirt floating around in it. And it's real appetizing. Um, well, the dirt isn't salt. And the water isn't salt. Uh, it's just in with the salt. Um, if you were to drink that nasty water, it would taste like salt because there's a ton of salt in it, but you wouldn't taste the dirt or the ground-up rocks. But if you used up all the salt, somehow what's left would be tasteless because it isn't salt. It was just in with the salt. Does that make sense? So if you have this big bag of rock salt that you get all of your table salt from and you grind that, uh, you know, you get low, you don't ever use the whole bag up. You know, you just throw more on top of it and it just keep filling it up. Eventually, one time you get to the bottom of that container, and there's nothing in there but dirt and salt, dirt and rocks. And there's more dirt and rocks than salt, and it's not fit for anything then but to be thrown out and walked on. So the bag of salt becomes tasteless, not because the salt is transformed into something else, but because what's left in the bag isn't salt. Christians are always salt. They preserve culture. They allow culture to go on living. They are essential to every area of life as we know it. Without the salt of Christianity, cultures die. We live in a time when there are more rocks and gravel in the bag than salt. And thus we can look around just about everywhere and see our culture dying. The rocks and salt do a good job of looking like salt, but looking like salt and being like salt are different things. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, uh, but I know when I was a teenager, some of my friends uh, that I hung around with uh, liked to go into restaurants and switch the salt and the sugar. Never done that. Have you? Mm -mm. Didn't think so. You know, they look the same. But they're not, and confusing the two can lead to some pretty nasty results. I'm afraid that's where a large part of the church is at. Not only do we want, not want to be salt, we want to look like something else. 
so we can fit in with the rest of the worthless rocks. That breaks my heart. It doesn't have to be the way it is now. Salt is a powerful thing. Salt doesn't ask permission to be salty or to make things salty. It simply does what it is. And it's time for the church to start doing what it already is. We need to be making our culture salty once again. Now that is not an overnight process. The salt has to be mined so that it can be used. It has to be consumed so that it can do its job. It has to be taken to wherever it's needed. The church has got to start getting the salt out of the ground to where it's needed. And that's everywhere. There's no place in existence that doesn't need to be permeated by the saltiness of Christ. We're to be the salt of the earth, the whole earth. We are not the salt of heaven. We are the salt of earth, of the earth. That is our calling, to transform the earth from death to life by the grace of God and His mighty power. We need to start assaulting the earth, and I'm going to spell that A-S-A-L-T-I-N-G minus the U. We're not talking about attacking the earth. We're simply being Christians everywhere we go. Assaulting the earth is not a top-down process. It's, it's not, we're going to make you salty whether you want to be or not. And we were talking about the Inquisition in Sunday school. Uh, that is not how we assault the earth. Uh, by grace, through faith, you are changed from rocks and gravel into salt. You are made new creatures in Christ. You are assaulted by God. And transformed by his mighty power. Your task then is to assault your family. You must teach them to walk in righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. In other words, you must teach them to walk by the power of grace in the commandments of God. Grace that does not lead us to walk in the commandments of God is not grace. You must also assault your workplace and your career. There is no neutrality. There is no place that is to remain unsalty. We mentioned earlier that salt is made up of sodium and chloride. Uh, so too is Christian salt a compound. It is made up of grace and the law. And without both substances, you don't have Christian salt. The grace of God transforms us and is transforming us into salt. Obedience to the law of God, or to put it another way, the demonstration of our graceful good works is the outgrowth of being salt. It is the taste of the salt. The righteousness which exceeds that of the Pharisees is the righteousness that flows out of a transformed heart. It is the righteousness of Christ lived out in the everyday issues of life. Excuse me. The Christian life is one where we're transformed by grace from rebellion against God and His ways to conformity to God's righteous ways. It's no accident that in this passage concerning salt and light we're told explicitly, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or prophets. I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's a scary passage to me. Because I spent most of my life trying to nullify God's law. 
I have, in fact, been against God's law. I thought that I could make it on grace that simply forgives my sins and then lets me do whatever I want until Jesus comes back. But that's not biblical grace. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Biblical grace is anything but cheap. It calls us to obedience. Now, if you want to see the other side of the coin, look at the Pharisees. They had law, but no grace. They kept the outward form of the law, but they did so in opposition to the law. Because if your heart is not right with God, everything you do is sin. That's a pretty powerful statement. Proverbs 21.4 tells us this. A high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. In other words, even the good things that a wicked man does are sin. And that includes the wicked in the church as well. One of the underlying principles of the Mosaic law is the circumcision of the heart in submission to God. Unless your heart is transformed by the grace of God, all your works are like filthy rags. Gracious law-keeping doesn't graceless law-keeping, excuse me, doesn't save you. It builds up a case against you. Law-keeping must flow from a heart changed by grace. Or it is worthless. Grace does not nullify the law. It enables you to keep it. To be obedient to it. In fact, obedience to God's law in every area of life is the call of the one who has, been, who has become a new creature in Christ. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what being conformed to the image of Christ is all about. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father and His Word in everything He did. When by grace, through faith, we enter into new life in Christ, we receive His righteousness completely. At the same time, that we're learning to walk in that righteousness that has already been given to us. We're saved and we're being saved. Sanctified and being sanctified. We're in Christ and yet we're being conformed to His image. That is the struggle of the Christian faith. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in us both to will and to do. Both grace and the law must join together in the life of the Christian. It's then through our gracious good works, our obedience in everyday life, accomplished solely by the grace of God that the dirt and rocks around us begin to say, when the world tastes so good. Or, or as Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6, I taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you're in, entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who hear, will hear all these statutes and say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. It is our graceful good works that bring people to glorify God. How long has it been since you've heard a non-believer praise the wisdom of the church, the wisdom and understanding of the church? I don't think I've ever heard it. Uh, that tells me that something is dreadfully wrong with the church. Uh, I, I'd love to see an episode of The Simpsons where they actually praised the church instead of ridiculed. But, Instead of being the wisdom and understanding, instead of our culture seeing wisdom and understanding in Christianity, they see nothing but ridicule. 
Something is desperately wrong with the church. Desperately wrong. There's no area of thought and life that should be left unsalty. Salt is to permeate every area of life. Education, government, entertainment, business. Fill in the blank with a choice of your own and it should be assaulted. Every area of life is to be rooted and grounded in righteousness that proceeds from a heart circumcised by grace. Oh, that God would give us the grace to be salty. See, I have a vision for Middle Tennessee. It is a longing for salt to do its job. And it is not a short-term vision. It won't happen tomorrow. But as I look out on the horizons 50, 75, 100 years from now, I see a time when Middle Tennessee is truly salty. My heart yearns for a time when 50% of the population of Middle Tennessee is truly salty. Not just going to church. I long to see strong, vibrant, salty churches in every city in Middle Tennessee. I want desperately to see those churches apply their saltiness to every area of life so that salty education would be the norm and not the exception. And the education based on dirt and rubble would be a thing of the past. I long to see those churches take the lead in ministry to the poor and the sick. That is our job. You know, that is one of the things we are commanded to do. And I long to see the government of our cities and counties become salty once again so that righteousness is exalted in the land and the bondages that hold people down and suppress them can be lifted by the grace of God and true freedom reign throughout the whole region. These longings and dreams are not fairy tales. I see them in the commands and the promises of God. I see them in the commands to be salt and light, to do justice and love mercy, to minister to the poor and needy. Commands that we neglect at our own peril. I see this spreading saltiness to be a precursor to the promises of the abundant life, not just individually, but in our families, communities, nations, and the earth. Our land is broken, barren, and saltless. But God promises that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and I will heal their land. There is hope. We can rest securely upon the foundation of the promises of God. Christ the King reigns now and will continue to reign until every enemy is made his footstool. It will not be easy. But we are assured that the victory is Christ's and ours in Him by the grace of God Almighty. In this passage, Jesus also tells us that we are more than salt. We are also light. You are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It is a true statement. That says, in the absence of light, darkness prevails. And if you know what movie that comes from, tell me afterwards. Just check. Uh, as it is with salt in our culture, so it is with light. We're not in complete darkness yet, but the light has surely been fading for quite some time. We're called to be light in a dark world. A survey of the history of our country would clearly show a shift away from Christianity. About 150 years ago or so, we began to put the light of God under a basket. 
And instead of shining the light, instead of letting the light that's in us shine out and expose the things of darkness, we retreated. And we have been retreating for over a hundred years. Christianity is more than fire and life insurance. It is light that should first permeate your whole being. And the light should be continually exposing the dark places first in your own heart and then in the hearts of those in the culture around us, leading us to confession of sin, but more than that, repentance from sin. There's a big difference between those two things. And the grace of God is big enough to bring both of those into your life. Confession is admitting that you're a sinner. Repentance is turning from your sin and walking in righteousness. We as Christians are called to do both by God's grace. Is your sin too big for God to take care of? Is grace so small that it can't cause you to walk in obedience? The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter Catechism certainly didn't think so. They wrote, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto God, unto righteousness. That should be the ongoing outcome of you being in the light. Your demons don't have to be your best friends. Uh, The light has come to shine on the darkness, in your heart, in your family, at your work, in your community. The light of Christ should be shining before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Do you see that the light draws us to obedience, which is what good works are? And obedient good works cause those around us to glorify God? The world can't see your changed heart. Some days I bet you can't even see it. What the world sees are your actions as they are illuminated by the light. This is one of the reasons why Jesus in this same chapter of Matthew says... Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. That is our calling in this world, to be conformed to the image of Christ, who was perfectly obedient to the Father in all things. It's my prayer that we will embrace the grace of God, which is so wonderfully lavished upon us, and beg God to let us walk in righteousness in every area of life. Only then will we be able to will we begin to increase the wattage of light in our culture. You know, everything I said about salt's impact on society applies to light as well. We should be shining the light in every area of life. Art, music, movies, education, government, the police department, science and medicine, law, entertainment, business, and more. It is our calling to shine the light so that the world can see what good works look like in all of these areas. We do not have to be afraid of the darkness. We simply need to embrace the light and take the baskets off our heads. God, by his wonderful grace, will do the rest. Let's pray and give God thanks. Father God, originator and completer of this awesome, victorious plan that has never faltered a single time, We ask that you pour out your wisdom upon each and every one of us that we might advance your kingdom in Middle Tennessee. We ask that you would give us grace to walk in obedience to your ways and more gracious wisdom to figure out exactly what your ways are. We ask that you would exalt the name of Jesus in Middle Tennessee and that you would cause those who live here to glorify your name because of the spread of the gospel and the increase of obedience. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.